Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our scripture this morning comes from the Old Testament prophet Amos, chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your, entire burned, your entirely burned offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your electric guitars. Oh, it's harps, I'm sorry. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Read that with me. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen. So as Cameron shared earlier, as you saw on the video, this has been service month. In many ways, we've been reactivating First Church's commitment to service, a long-standing commitment to service to the community and world. But in many ways, that service was diminished, impacted, suffered during the pandemic. And so this is kind of a a reboot, a a fresh start, something we intend to continue uh, in the, the weeks, months, years to come. Uh, You saw on the screen just a few things that we did this month. Uh, Working at Faith UMC's food distribution in in, um, Union Park, which they do every week. Uh, Service at the Christian Service Center. Uh, A free book exchange. I don't know if Cameron mentioned that, but the books are free downstairs and supporting, uh, hoping to get books in the hands of kids that, that don't often have that opportunity. Um, not mentioned, not on the screen, uh, at the end of last year, at the end of the last calendar year, uh, a group from our church uh, were trained as early response folk. They've had the training, uh, and so now they're ready to go into situations after natural disasters um, and to offer assistance, and in other situations. And just this week, bought a trailer that's going to get filled with tools so they're ready to go as soon as the need arises. Last Sunday, we hosted a bunch of agencies that we partner with in the community. And over the month of, months of January and February, we collected thousands upon thousands of dollars of cash donations, books, non-perishable foods and clothing. I figured just the blue bags was about $12,000 worth of donations that you provided, not to mention cash donations. Um, and and I, there's thousands of books down there. What's a book worth? I think a book is worth a lot. They're free, though. I don't know if you know that. They're How much are they? They're for free. That's good. That's good. Now, this is in our, the heartbeat of our church, right? Our vision is to love and seek and love God, love and serve people. I mean, that's in our vision. That's in our mission. This is who we as a church always have been and will always be. Now, much of what I just described, much of what we just did in the last month falls under what I would call 
mercy-type ministries. Mercy. I talked about that two weeks ago. Oftentimes when we give mercy to others, we're meeting an immediate, tangible need that addresses either security or just sustainability, the survival types of things. We're talking about food, shelter, clothing, uh, school supplies for kids so they can thrive in school. Um, churches tend to excel at mercy ministries, and this church certainly does. There's something that feels very good about handing food to somebody that you know might go without or putting clothes on somebody that would otherwise be cold or not have the right clothes for getting a job or whatever the case may be. And let's be honest, it's a pretty easy thing to do, isn't it? It's not that hard to look in your closet and pull out the clothes that don't fit anymore or that are just extras. It's not hard to throw bogos in the, in the cart at Publix. It's not hard to donate a little bit of extra money. Mercy-type ministry oftentimes is kind of low demand and high impact. We know that it meets an immediate need, and that feels great. But there is a problem with mercy ministry. Now, mercy ministry is important, and we're going to keep doing it. Don't misunderstand me. But there is a problem. Because the people we feed today are going to be hungry tomorrow. And they're going to be hungry the day after that. And they're going to be hungry next year. And, and one outfit to get a job doesn't necessarily mean you have the clothes you need to do the job, right? That sometimes what we're doing is just relieving what the problem is in the moment, in the day, but it's not addressing the underlying issue, the underlying struggle. And in fact, if we're not comfortable, sometimes we're contributing to a cycle of dependency and a cycle of poverty. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means it's not all that we should do. For instance, why in a thriving community like Orlando and Central Florida are there such a high percentage of folks who struggle just to make in meat? Why is it so hard to make a livable wage in Central Florida, to feed your family, to have adequate shelter? Why are so many children growing up in our community in unstable environments? Why do we continue as a society to struggle with discriminatory, systemic issues, unfair policies and practices that make life difficult for so many? Why are there so many who struggle to make it day by day when some of us have it so good and so easy? You have probably heard the expression, give a person a fish and they can eat for a day. Teach a person to fish, and you know it, they can eat for a lifetime, right? Now that's a good thing to do. In fact, that's kind of an advanced form of mercy ministry. When we help people overcome obstacles, when we help people gain education and training, and we develop people so that they can be uh, self-sustained, there's a dignity in that, of not having to be dependent on handouts and be able to work for a living and provide your family. Organizations like Circles and United Against Poverty and iDignity are great for helping people overcome those obstacles. But let's go back to that, that image of, of fishing, right? Teach a person to fish and they can, they can eat for a lifetime, right? That's logical. It makes sense. It's a good thing. But let's just play out that metaphor. What if a person knows how to fish? In fact, they're a great fisherman, fisherwoman. But when they get to the pond, it's polluted. 
and the fish isn't safe to eat? Or what if they get to the pond and somebody's put up a fence and only lets certain people in? Or what if there's laws prohibiting fishing for no apparent reason? Or what if to fish you have to have an expensive license that's just cost prohibitive for some people? Or what if to get a license to fish, you have to go online and buy the license online, which means you need to have internet access and a credit card, which not everyone does, by the way. Or what if the demand for services is so great there's too many people fishing in the pond and the pond is overfished? Or what if the pond isn't accessible to people with special needs? Or what if fishing in the pond is illegal and if you get caught, then you'll have a criminal record that'll follow you from now on every time you want to rent an apartment or apply for a job. Now these are just metaphors, right? I'm just making an analogy. But those what ifs are real in all kinds of different ways. People struggle with those what ifs in all kinds of ways who want to support their family, who want to be productive members of society, but there are things standing in their ways. So the question for us to wrestle with this morning, and really all the time, is what is the church's role in the world beyond acts of mercy? Is that all God's calling us to do, is give someone a fish for a day? Or is God calling us to address issues deeper and larger? What is the church's role in matters of justice? How can a better world be possible as we claim if we don't identify and address the core foundational issues of justice in the church and the world. Many years ago, a theologian and pastor by the name of Howard Thurman, who we quote a lot around here, said, too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and oppressed. This, despite the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is that God is on the side of the weak and the oppressed. Now it's just undeniable. It's just undeniable. We need to own this, that the church has often been on the wrong side of history. I don't mean our church specifically, I mean the church globally. From state-sponsored religion to our complicity in colonialism to our participation in the transatlantic slave trade and Christians owning slaves to resistance and reluctance when it came to the civil rights movement, to current resistance around anti-racism efforts, to even our own protest and condemnation of marriage equality and the exclusion of the LGBTQ plus community. Christianity has far too often sided with the status quo, which means siding with those who already have privilege and power. The church must have a role in the world to confront privilege and oppression that goes beyond buying school supplies and BOGOs at Publix and giving people our used clothes. Those things are good, but that's not all we're called to be. The church, the Christians, must learn how to speak out, protest, vote, petition, Create petitions, act, organize, write letters, volunteer, whatever it takes to make a better world possible. Desmond Tutu once said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. So let's go back to my fishing analogy, teaching a person to fish. They can fish for a lifetime. Maybe it's our job to ask, 
who's polluting the pond anyway? Who built that fence and who can we get to cut it down? Why is an, a license necessary to go fishing? I'm speaking hypothetically. H how can we make the pond more available to those who need it most? In other words, as we look at the world to make it more fair, what needs to change and what's our role in changing it? Now, I wanted to find my terms. I talked about mercy earlier, mercy being those tangible expressions that meet an immediate need, food, shelter, etc. Today, I want to talk about justice. Justice. Now, when you hear the word justice, I'm willing most of you think in terms of courts of law. There are laws in our nation, and sometimes people violate the law, and sometimes that goes to a court, and you assume that in that court that, that, that there will be um, a just verdict. Right? And so you see that symbolism of Lady Justice. She holds a scale in one hand. Scale implies what? Fairness, right? Fairness, that, that this is gonna be not unbalanced, right? It's gonna be fair, that the, the time will meet the crime. The crime will be, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. Also notice she's blindfolded. That means the verdict will be unbiased, unbiased. Now, justice, as we think of it biblically, is not just what happens in courts of laws, though it includes that, for sure. We assume, we expect, that what happens in courts will be just, just and fair. But biblically, we care about justice and fairness in every aspect of life, both in the laws and how they're executed, in policies and how they're implemented, and social mores and prejudices and so forth and so on. We gotta ask, is there fairness for all people in all aspects of life? Is there equal access to education? Are there equal opportunities for all people to vote? Does, can a woman in our society expect to do the same job as a man that they'll be paid the same wage? Can a person of color who does the same job as a person who is white, Caucasian, Anglo, can they expect to make the same salary or that the jobs are even available to them? Are there equal access to home loans and to apartments to rent? Can the LGBTQ plus community expect that there is equal opportunity for marriage, parenting, adoption, and housing? Can those with criminal records expect that after they have served for, paid their penalty, that they can live full and productive lives? Can immigrants find a safe home in our nation, in a, if there's a path for citizenship or at least some legal way to be here? Can people with special needs expect to have the same opportunities in life? Or just make it simple. Can every child expect the same opportunities in our community to fulfill the same kind of dreams? Or is that just reserved for a privileged few? Now notice, as I just went through that list, and that's just Vance's list, right? I use words like equal and fairness and comparable, right? Now, let me just say a word about equality. The reality is that there is not equality in this world, and there never will be. We don't all experience life equally, meaning the same. We don't live in the same neighborhoods. We don't attend the same schools. We don't live in the same houses, shop in the same stores, go on the same vacations. We don't all experience the same successes and failures in life. Some of us don't 
experience the struggles that others have to endure. There's intangible things we have to, you know, kind of wrestle with. There's just some people that have really high levels of intelligence and others who do not. There's some people who are exceptionally gifted in particular ways. There are people who are just highly motivated and highly driven, where others are not as much. I mean, this is just true. Some will endure more difficult challenges and have to overcome them. That's not equal, right? But justice demands fairness. While everything may not be equal, justice cares about fairness. We can't, we can't stand by anything that's exploitive, unfair, unjust in policies or prejudices. Now, also, we need to talk about the word privilege, and that's a hot word, right? But there's just simply no denying. Let me just talk about me for a minute. There's simply no denying that as a tall, white, straight, married man, that I have had certain privileges in my life, that they have just come to me. Long before I was educated, long before I had any work experience, long before I was tested to see whether I could be faithful to a task, for I had any life experience, just because of who I am, I already had a leg up in our society. It was already mine for the taking. Society has advantaged me, and it still does. I lived in good neighborhoods. I attended good schools. I've had good opportunities. Even within the United Methodist Church, there are advantages for me as a white male pastor that others don't have. Let me just give you an example. First United Methodist Church of Orlando, in our 100-year-plus history, has never had a lead pastor who was not white, male, heterosexual, married. Right? Now let me just tell you this, and I think this is probably pretty obvious, that I am white, male, heterosexual, and married doesn't make me more spiritual. It doesn't make me more spiritually deep. It doesn't make me more spiritually authoritative. It doesn't make me more gifted than if I was a gay pastor or if I was a black pastor or if I was a female pastor. I think we know this, and yet, and yet, I have a very clear understanding that part of why I have this role is because I have privilege. Because I have privilege. Now please know, I love my job, (laughs) and I love this church, and therein lies the struggle, doesn't it? When someone of privilege holds the position and knows that they have it in part because of their privilege. Justice is more than just equality. Literal equality is a myth. But we always strive, we must always work, we must always vote for fairness. We've got to confront, we've got to change unfair systems. Now, I don't know of anywhere in Scripture that more clearly articulates the struggle of faith and justice than Amos chapter 5. A comforting passage, wasn't it? Amos 5. Here we find deeply religious people, meticulous in their religious practices and their observances, all the while apparently blind, ignorant, callous to the injustices that surround them that undeniably they were complicit to. If we had started earlier in Amos 5, you would have heard expressions like 
turning justice to poison. These are accusations. Crushing the weak. Accepting bribes. This is God's chosen people, Israel's leaders. Turning justice to poison. Crushing the weak. Accepting bribes. Turning the poor away. They were performing religion, religious functions perfectly while at the same time ignoring the needs of those around them, ignorant of their own hypocrisy. You heard it before, I'm going to read it again, Amos 5, 21. God says, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me entirely burnt offering and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. Talking about sacrifices in the temple. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps. Or let's put it in modern language. Can we do that for a minute? Let's imagine that it goes like this. God says, I hate your well-planned, well-rehearsed, well-choreographed worship services. I hate the long-winded preaching and praying. Though you weren't long-winded. No, no, no. Sermon maybe. I hate the sound of your bands, sorry guys, choirs and musical instruments. I'm sick of your creeds and hymns and liturgy. It all hurts my ears and eyes. All the while you sing your songs and pray your prayers while outside your beautiful walls my people suffer under the burden of unfair laws and unjust practices and the unbending status quo. Or in the words of James, Jesus' brother, religion that our God fought that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There's a liberation, a black liberation theologian by the name of James Cone who says this, the Christian gospel is more than a transcendent reality, more than going to heaven when I die. It is also an imminent reality, a powerful, liberating presence among the poor right now. The gospel is found wherever poor people struggle for justice, fighting for their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you hear that? The gospel is found where people struggle for justice. So the famous line from Amos chapter 5, often quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I want you to let that metaphor just kind of wash over you. You got to get that wash over you? Well, let that metaphor wash over you for a moment. I imagine a large, deep, flowing river with a powerful, unstoppable current. I imagine a river that's carving deep into the landscape sometimes overflowing its banks, and that's a problem sometimes, but it also helps fertilize all of the land around it. It brings life, pushing away debris and obstacles all along the way. I think that's the image that the prophet Amos imagined, that justice is such a powerful force that it carves into the landscape, that justice is such a powerful force that it pushes away unjust policies and practices, that it's such a powerful reality that the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. That's the, that's the imagination of Amos. That's the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King. That's the embodiment of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is the requirement of God for God's people, that we be people of justice. It's what we're called to do. 
Some of you may know the name Brian Stevens, Stevenson. He wrote a book called Just Mercy. There was a movie about him. He, he fights in the criminal justice service system for people who have gotten the death penalty unfairly. He fights for them to get a fair trial and sentencing. He says this, the true measure of our commitment to justice cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. He's talking to us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. He's talking about society, but could we say it in, in, in more close to home, the true measure of a church is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, the condemned. Or could he say, the true measure of a church is how we work for justice? Or the true measure of our commitment to a better world really being possible is the degree to which we expect and work for a more just world. Let's pray. So God, we dedicate this month of service to you. May it be the beginning of many, many months and years of service to this world. Lord, we do want to meet the needs of today. We, wanna, we want to fill empty stomachs. Lord, we want to clothe people who are inadequately clothed. We want to protect the innocent. We want to speak for those who don't have a voice. But ultimately, Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for this world to be a more just place for all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website, at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.